0: let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you so much that you've brought us to this place. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for your presence here among us today. I pray that as we look at what is really a difficult scripture, Father, that you would give us ears to hear the message that your spirit would speak to this church this day. We look to you now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are starting a study through the early parts of the book of Revelation. We're specifically going to cover over the next seven weeks the letters to the churches. The Revelation is not written like most of the other books of the Bible that we're used to. Um, It's not a narrative. It's not based on historical fact telling us what has happened like the Gospels were. It is what we call apocalyptic literature. That was a form of writing that was very common back in the day that it was written, though it's not very common in this day. And so you wouldn't read the book of Revelation like you'd read a book or a novel or a newspaper article um, because there's such a lot of symbolism in it, you just simply wouldn't understand it. And since it's a lot of symbolism, what you have to do as a reader is you have to go back to the other parts of Scripture in order to understand what the book of Revelation is telling you properly and so... um, How many of you heard the scripture from Revelation today? And I'm like, oh, Revelation. Because when I was told that we were going to start studying in Revelation, I said, oh, Revelation. Oh, my goodness. It's hard to preach on. Um, I was mentioning to a friend of mine that we were going to cover this scripture. uh, And she said, oh, that book's Scary. Like, Revelation is scary. I don't want to study that. And, um, to which I say, it, it's different. It's different than what we're used to, but it's not meant to be scary. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then Revelation should not be scary, but it should bring you comfort, and it should bring you hope. And so my goal today is to help us understand this little piece of the book of Revelation, which is the letter to the church at Ephesus. I want us to understand what it, what, what it meant for them. But I also want us to look at what it means for you and me and I want us to see where in it we can find comfort and inspiration and direction. So um, so I'm praying that I'll be able to accomplish that today. But before I get to Revelation 2, um, I need to re- read you Revelation 1. I need to read a little piece of that because... We're going to go over this, the next seven weeks, we're going to do the letters to the seven churches. And every single one of the letters refers back to this piece of scripture that I'm going to read you, this initial vision that John had of Jesus in Revelation 1. So listen closely now, and then as we move forward over the next seven weeks, it's all going to be pretty familiar to you, okay? And so here's what we read in Revelation 1. This thing is tickling me. Uh, starting at verse 12. These are, this is John speaking, okay? John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash across his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." Then he placed his hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the messengers to the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. So we're going to refer back to that a lot over the next seven weeks. We can see that this is Jesus who was speaking to John, the one in the white robe with the golden sash. That was Jesus. And these words that we're going to hear addressed to the church at Ephesus, I got news for you. They're addressed to the church at Mount Hope as well. These words, the words of Jesus Christ are for us and they're for us today. So now we're going to go in. I'm going to go verse by verse and I'm going to try and teach you what this means. Revelation 2 verse 1. Write this letter to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's the comfort, folks. Remember, I said this should be comforting for us. Here's the comfort. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. There's comfort in that. Remember, the seven stars are the messengers, right? the pastors, the priests, the speakers to and of the churches. He holds them in his right hand. Now his right hand is a symbol of strength and protection. Remember I said we're going to go back in scripture. If we went back to Isaiah, we would hear God tell Israel what? I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you in what? My righteous right hand. Jesus Holds us in his right hand. Your pastors, your leaders, your Sunday school teachers, your youth workers. Parents and grandparents who are speaking to your children and your grandchildren on behalf of Jesus. Anyone who is speaking to another person, sharing the message of Jesus and on behalf of Christ's church. Guess what? He's got you in his righteous right Sometimes that's the only thing that gets me through. When times are tough for me is the knowledge that my Savior, the mighty Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated death itself, has me in his right hand. So he holds the seven stars in his right hand. And the scripture says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, remember, the golden lampstands are the church. Here's what that says, folks. Jesus walks among the church. Jesus walks among the church. He's here. He's with us right at this moment. And how do I know that? I know that because the language that was used is present tense. It's not past tense. It doesn't say he walked among. It says he walks among the churches. Jesus walks among us. There's comfort in that for us folks. In the vision of Revelation 1, John describes Jesus when he saw him. and He said that he was wearing a white robe with a golden sash. Now I want you to track with me here because I'm going back. This is a description of priestly clothing. This is what the priests would have worn back in that day. White, sometimes they wear it in this day too. The white with a with a golden sash, okay? Remember that in order to, to understand this symbolism in Revelation, we're going to go back to other books of the Bible. So if we were to go back to the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, that's the priestly orders, we would understand that the job of the priest was to be in the house of God. It was to be in the church. And it was to make sure that the lampstand in the church was filled with oil. Why? So that the light would shine forth from the house of God both day and night. The priest tends to the lampstands, okay? Jesus is walking among the church, the lampstands. And just as a priest would do, he's making sure it's filled with oil. So that the light will shine both day and night. Now, what is the oil? Another symbol. I'm glad you asked. When we go back to the scriptures, we will see that oil is representative of the Holy Spirit of God. So if a king or if a priest was anointed with oil, that was symbolic that the Holy Spirit had set apart this person to do the the good work. So the lampstand is the church, and the thing that makes the lampstand work the way it should is the oil, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so that's the interpretation. Here's my observation, okay, which I think would be a good application for us. Always we want to learn what the scripture means, and then how do we apply it to our lives. So here it comes. I believe, just based on what I know about our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that one of the greatest longings of Jesus— is that he would walk among us here at Mount Hope and see that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That this lampstand is full of the oil of the Holy Spirit. Why? So that our lamp stays lit and so that the light of Jesus Christ shines from this house of God both day and night. So that those who are lost around us might see the light of Christ shining in us and then become found. Lord God, I pray that you would grant us a fresh and overflowing feeling of the Holy Spirit so that Mount Hope United Methodist Church would indeed bear that light to the world as Christ has called us to do. Amen. Amen. Okay, verse 2. Jesus says, I know all the things that you do. I'm going to stop right there. When my friend tells me that she thinks the book of Revelation is scary, it shouldn't be scary for her, I know her, she knows the Lord, but uh, I can see that this might be one of those statements that would be a little intimidating, a little scary. I know all the things that you do. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, like if you are walking in the dark, okay, if you are... um, If you are uh, trying to hide a whole bunch of sin, if you're not walking in the way that the Lord calls you to walk, I could understand that I know all the things that you do might be intimidating, might be a little scary, right? But conversely, think about it this way. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you are serving him, he knows, he knows all the things that you do. You know, there are so many people who volunteer in so many ways in our church and in our church community, and they aren't always seen by the crowd. And they aren't always recognized by the pastors and the church leadership. But let me tell you something. Jesus says, I know all the things that you do. I know all the things that you do. I know that you fed that hungry person last week. I know that you reached out to that hurting child. I know that you prayed so earnestly for the one who was sick. I know you sent that meal. I know you gave up your Sunday nights to love on and pour into those young people. I know all the things that you do, says the Lord Jesus. And I love you. There's comfort in that. Even when others don't know, they don't need to know, Jesus knows exactly what you have done and he loves you. Verse 2 says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work. The Greek word there is energomai. We get our word energy from that. I've seen your energy. And I've seen your patient endurance. Hupomone is the Greek word, and that means perseverance steadfast. So I've seen your energy, and I've seen your perseverance. And I know that you don't tolerate sin. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. And you have discovered that they are liars. So Ephesus, let me tell you about this, was a great port city back in its day. It's modern-day Turkey, and it's, it's not there anymore. But it was a great port city. Fishing and cargo boats would come through Ephesus from all over the region. And people would come to the church, and they would say, I've got a message for you, it's from God. And the church at Ephesus would discern what they heard, and they would recognize those who were false prophets. Those who were bearers of a message that was not, in fact, of God. And they would reject them. And Jesus said, I see you holding fast to the truth and rejecting that which is not truth. And he commended the church for doing that. How's that apply to us today? Let me tell you how. I don't want any of us to think for even a minute that that thing That happened in the church back then does not happen today. False teaching was not just something that happened back then. There are those even today who have misunderstood, who have misinterpreted, and who are misrepresenting the word of God. Even today. And they speak loudly and sometimes they speak boldly and confidently. And so when we hear them, it's easy for us to take that message as one that comes with authority. But our responsibility today is to discern, to get into the word of God, to listen, to pray, and to make educated decisions about whether or not a message is from God. Those messages will be coming from all angles, I promise you. You're going to hear them at work. You're going to hear them at school. You're going to hear them on the news. You're going to hear them in the pulpits you got to be vigilant, vigilant, you got to be vigilant and studious, and we got to reject what we determine to be not in keeping with the word of God. That's our job as the church, and Christ will commend you for it. Verse three, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. All right. Even though they were faced with what was at times unimaginable hardship and opposition, the church at Ephesus did not give up And Jesus commended them for that. Now, I wonder if you have ever met a person in your life who just has not given up, who has just not given up. I really like the Christian singer Toby Mac. Anybody in here hear Toby Mac? First service didn't really know. They had blank stares on their faces. And I thought, I just need to play you some Toby Mac. But anyway, Toby Mac, um, he uh, lost his 21-year-old son just about two years ago to a drug overdose. All right? He had raised that son in the church and he had ministered to him and he had spoke and sang the name of Jesus to that boy every day of his life. And yet when Toby's prayers about his son's addiction were seemingly unanswered and he lost his boy to that disease, Toby did not give up. He did not stop praising the God that he was called to serve. He did not turn his back on his God but he persevered. Jesus commends that, folks, and I'm inspired by it. There are going to be times in our lives, I guarantee you, when circumstances might just be so far from what you think they should be, that it's tempting to just throw in the towel. It's tempting to turn away from God. It's tempting to turn away from the church. Why do I bother worshiping a God who isn't even getting me out of this situation? It's so easy to say that. And yet, even in those most difficult times, Jesus walks among us, does he not? He walks among the church and he loves you and he will carry you through and hold you in his righteous right hand and he will commend you as well for your perseverance through difficult times. And I would beg to, to, I I would venture to say that when you and I are in the midst of hardship and we continue to persevere and we continue to shine our light before men, that is the brightest light that you will ever be able to shine. Light shining for God in the midst of difficult circumstances is an attention getter. And it will not go unrecognized by those who need to see your God. Verse 4, Jesus said, but this complaint I have against you, you don't love me and each other as you did at first. I don't ever want to hear Jesus say that I don't love him. Because it hurts. It hurts to hear. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying on the outside church at Ephesus, you look great. Okay, you do good works and you persevere and you don't tolerate sin and you recognize false teachers. You endure hardships and you don't quit. That's all good. It's all good. Right. Sounds good. But it doesn't mean anything, Jesus says, because you don't love me like you used to. Jesus said, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the things you did at first. Jesus is saying, listen, John, tell this church, tell this church to look back and see how they used to be and tell them to look at how they are now. They're not the same because I long for them to turn back and to fall in love with me all over again. Jesus is saying this church is doing all the right things. They're just not doing it for all the right reasons. And so let me ask you this. Let's move it forward to today. Why do you do what you do? For those of you who are serving in the church, why do you do the things you do? Why do you serve? Do you remember how when you first came to Jesus, you were so enthralled with what he had done to bring you salvation? You were so grateful and so in love and so excited to do whatever you could do to be his hands and feet. Just out of pure love and gratitude. Do you remember that? Man, when I first came to Jesus, I couldn't wait to serve him. I was just so in love and I wanted to bless him. But here's what happened. See if this sounds familiar. After a while, you know, we're committed. I signed up to do this, so I'm committed to do it. I gave my word to help the church, so I'm going to help the church. I don't go back on my word. Suddenly, my reason for doing the good works, even though they're in the church, isn't out of love for Jesus. It's out of duty or obligation. I want to be known as reliable. So now I'm not acting in the church out of my first love. I've lost my first love. I had a person serving at Ridley. who's a mighty servant. And at first he started to serve because he was so moved by his love for Jesus. But after a while, guess what? He started liking to be in charge of ministries. He liked a little too much. And he felt good when he was important. Like, he liked to run the show. It felt good. And suddenly, he was doing the good thing, but he was doing it for the wrong reasons. His love for being a big shot overshadowed his love for Jesus. He lost his first love. So the church at Ephesus was doing all the right stuff, but Jesus knew their heart. And he says, you're not loving me and each other like you used to. You've lost your first love. And I would never want Jesus to say that about us or about our church. I would never want him to say that. I wonder how many of you have ever fallen in love. Anybody here ever fall in love with God or Jesus or even another human being? I so much have fallen in love. I have. Think back to what was it like? What was it like when you first fell in love? You would go out of your way to do the little nice things. Men, let me ask you this. How many of you used to send your girl flowers at the beginning of your relationship just because you knew it would make her smile and it would bless her and you loved her and you loved that smile and you wanted to see it? How many of you did it? hmm And then when you move forward, here's what happens. We send our, our wife flowers because next Tuesday is her birthday and I don't want to hear her yell and complain at me all week. If I forgot her birthday, so I'm sending the flowers. Now, let me ask you this: did the flowers you sent because you didn't want to hear her complain hold the same meaning as the flowers you sent because you love her and wanted to bless her and see her smile? No, they don't. It works both ways, girls. How many of us in the beginning of our love relationships would cook our husband's favorite meal, put it on display on the table, a little candle, a glass of wine, and lights down, limp, just so that he was blessed and he knew, I love you and I'm going to show you by making this meal, right? How many of us did that? I did it. Let me tell you what I did last night. I threw like franks and beans on the table because it was cheaper than takeout, okay? Now, let me ask you this. Do you think my franks and beans held nearly as much meaning for my husband as when I went to, to the effort of making from scratch pierogies? by his mother's recipe, like it didn't, it just didn't. So I did the right thing, I put food on the table, but I did it for the wrong reason, with the wrong intention. And that's how it often is in the church, that's what I'm trying to get at. We fall in love with Jesus in the beginning and we do the things that we know will bless him, but after a while it's not the love that drives us to do what we do. We don't do the things we do just because they'll bless Jesus, we do them for many other reasons. We lose our first love. And when that happens, the things we do, they don't mean anything to Jesus. And so let me ask you, are you right at this moment in love with your Lord Jesus? Do you sing out in church just because you want to bless him by sharing the words that lay on your heart? Do you reach out and help someone in need simply because it would bless your Savior to see you do so? Is the love of Jesus the cause and the source of everything you do in your life? And if your answer is no, then here's the next question. How do I get back? How do I get back to that first love? Well, Jesus gave us the answer in the next line of Revelation 2. He said, turn back and do the things you did at first. What does that mean? What does that mean? When I first fell in love with Jesus, let me tell you what I did. I attended every Bible study that I could get myself in attendance to. I went to every worship service that I could. I sang every song that I could think of constantly throughout the day, whether it was in the hymnal or whether it was on the radio. I bought every devotional book I could get my hands on. I spent time in His Word. That's what you do. You go back and you do the thing that you did when you fell in love with Jesus. Immerse yourself in Jesus. Read his words. Sing his songs. Hear his messages as often as you can. And when you do the good things that you do in church, don't stop doing them. When you do them, you think of what was done for you first by Jesus. And let that be the thing that motivates you to do what you do for him. Contemplate the love of Jesus. Let me tell you, when I first heard that Jesus came down from the highest heaven and he lived a sinless life and he suffered and he shed his blood and he died on a cross for my forgiveness of sins, I was moved by that. But then when I thought he didn't just stay dead, he rose from the dead and he went to prepare a place for me so that I forever would be spared of the suffering that I deserve. How could I not fall in love? I couldn't help it. I just fell in love. You know, when a married couple, when they start to feel distant and apart from one another, very often the first thing they do is they come to the pastors at the church and and they ask for our advice and our input. And let me tell you what I tell them. I tell them, do the things that you did when you first fell in love because very often that will remind you, that will set a spark or it will rekindle a flame. That's how you get back to your first love for Jesus too. And when your love for him burns strong and bright, guess what happens? Then you're moved to serve for no other reason than that it will bless him. And when you do that, your service means the world to your Savior. Verse five says, if they don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. What does that mean? It means that the church in Ephesus was in danger of losing its life. You know, the moment that this church operated for some reason other than out of their love of Jesus, that church risked losing its life. And folks, I wonder how many churches today are in danger of exactly that. I pray that this church never fall into that category, but rather that we may fall in love and stay in love with our wonderful, beautiful Savior, Verse 6, but this is in your favor, Jesus said. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. I'm not going to tell you too much about the Nicolaitans other than that they were false teachers. They were false teachers. Some scholars believe that they were a group led by a guy named Nicholas, hence the term Nicolaitans, who taught in such a way as to divide the church. He didn't unify the church. He divided the church. He sought to divide and segregate into classes, clergy and laity, uh, this color and that color, this class and that class important people and unimportant people, and Jesus didn't like it. Jesus wants a unified church, and he didn't hate the Nicolaitans, but he hated what they were doing, and they hated what they were teaching, and he commended the church at Ephesus for recognizing it and for rejecting something that would divide Christ's church. Be on the lookout. Be vigilant today. There are things that will seek to divide our church I'm not going to go into what they are, but they're popping in your head right now. There are things that would seek to divide our church. The Lord Jesus Christ will commend you for rejecting those things. And finally, verse seven, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit is saying to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Who here has ears? Anyone? Anyone got a set of ears? Yeah, we all have ears. If you have ears, this message is for you. Now, you will often hear me. Always, every time I preach, from the very first July 1st, 2011, was my first time I ever preached. Um, and that day and every day that I preached moving forward, I always pray, God, give us ears to hear the message that your spirit would speak to this church this day. I say it every single time. You've heard me say it a hundred times since I got here. Here's where it comes from. You're going to hear it seven times. In the book of Revelation, those who have ears, let them hear. This message is for you because you have ears, okay? So listen up. If you fall in love and you stay in love with Jesus and you live according to his word, you get to eat from the tree of life. You get to eat from the tree of life. More symbolism here in the book of Revelation goes back to the book of Genesis. We see the tree of life first mentioned in the book of Genesis. And then here, beginning and end, it's bookending our relationship with God. In in the Garden of Eden, there were many trees, right? Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from the tree of life. They were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, they sinned and they broke the relationship with God. They broke the fellowship with God and they were cast out of the garden of Eden, right? In the book of Genesis, we read this, cast out of the garden of Eden and God put an angel to guard the tree of life because when they were broken fellowship with God, they weren't allowed to eat from the tree of life. They weren't in fellowship with God. Jesus says, if you live this way, if you love me, if you serve me out of love, if you stay in love with me, you're gonna get to eat from the tree of life. You're gonna be in fellowship with me. You're gonna be in fellowship with God. Folks, that's eternal life. That's eternal life. For the one who is victorious, you will have fellowship with God. You'll have eternal life. All right, I'm gonna sum it up. Here's what Revelation 2, 1 to 7 says for us, okay? After all that explanation, now I'm gonna sum it up in two sentences. You'll hate me for that. Jesus is in the midst of this church and he longs for us to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit so that our lights will shine. He longs for us to love him and to love one another with all that we are, with all that we have. And he longs that that very love would drive everything we say and do. And when that is the case, then, we have true fellowship with Christ. May we always, Mount Hope United Methodist Church, may we always cling to our first love. Amen. We're gonna sing, aren't we? Are we doing Spirit of the Living God? No. Yes, yeah, Spirit of the Living God.